So to review, last week we did part one of this series and talked about just how we can have hope in the wake of tragedy, especially after the shooting in Las Vegas, just how God offers hope in the midst of that. And this week, as I said, we're talking about the hope of heaven. And we'll look at how heaven isn't just a painting or a nice story, something to worry about later, or something we just tell our kids. But it's something that can offer us practical hope in our lives. And to start, I wanted to address a question that might be on your mind as we start to talk about it. Why talk about heaven at all, Pastor Guy? Is this just a waste of a half hour? And I have five quick reasons just to get started. Why, why do we need to talk about this? Why do we need to review it together? One says up there is that our time on this earth is shorter than we realize. In Psalm 90, it says, You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. We live lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to eighty. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear, and we fly away. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear you deserve. Teach us to realize the brevity of life, so that we may grow in wisdom. So the psalmist said there's this element of the brevity of life that God needs to teach us in. And that we're wise if we understand that brevity. And there's an element of deceit that can creep into our lives that we think we constantly have more time than we do. Those 58 victims in Las Vegas never imagined they wouldn't come home from that country concert a couple weeks ago. But there's a reality that we could have a day, we could have a year, we could have 30 years. We don't really know. But we do know it's brief. It's unknown how long it is. And we don't have as much time as we think we do. Another reason is that we will one day each face death. It's kind of famous quote, kind of humorous, maybe, especially with what's going on in our government. But it says, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, said Benjamin Franklin. They seem to have been going up over the last 200 years, so he was probably onto something. More seriously, Hebrews 9.27 and just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment you can cheat death but you can't win but we each face a death unless the Lord comes back and even that event is described in the Bible that he would become like a thief in the night at a time you were not expecting it would come as a surprise to us So we can pretend that death will never come. We can act like we're in the bar and we're just running up a tab that we'll never get. But eventually closing time comes and that bill comes due. And it's that way with our death. The third is that eternity is forever. There is no end. There is no next chapter. There is no reprieve if it's not the eternity we were expecting. And there is no end to the joy if it's an eternity worth hoping for, it's forever. Fourth, we tend to distract ourselves with less important or even worthless things and lose sight of heaven. I was a swimmer in high school. It's the sport I was the best at. I think I was kind of a skinny guy, so worked better than some things. But near the end of my freshman year, I came late to practice or skipped a practice, and so as a punishment, I had to start doing the longest race they had, which was the 500-yard race. And I was pretty good at it, so then I had to start doing it every week for the last three years of high school. But it was a long race. It was 20 lengths of the pool, and so I would lose sight of it and zone out. It was so long that 
they had to have someone at the end of the pool with this counter thing that would count how far you'd gone and they'd dip it in the pool as I went by the wall so I could know how far I was because I'd just completely lose count and I wouldn't know when to stop. But another thing would happen while I was zoning out is that I would really stop caring about how fast I was going in the middle. Like I'd be thinking about it for a while and then I'd zone out and then I'd get near the end and want to go real fast and finish. And my coach would say, if you have all this energy to go real fast at the end, you probably didn't go hard enough in the middle. And so she would have the person holding down the sign telling me how far I'd gone. They would just swing it to tell me, Brad, you need to go faster and pick it up. You're just kind of zoning out and not going fast enough. Otherwise, you're not going to be in contention at the end of the race and place like you want to. And because life is like that. We lose sight of the end. We're distracted. We're zoning out. Are we living like heaven is the finish line? And lastly, I think we don't always understand heaven, and so it's not practical to us. And if the reward is not understood, we will not work towards it. Imagine if you showed up at a job, and they said, we want you to work for 30 years, and at the end of it, there's going to be some kind of reward that you'll get for it. We can't tell you what it is, and we're not going to pay you for 30 years. I wouldn't sign up for that. I'd take a job that they said we're going to pay you $10 an hour, and that's it. I'd go, well, I can see what that is. I'll take it. I'm hired. I used to work at the state, at the government, and they had this pension plan that people would be there for. It was something kind of like that, except they had this whole math chart of how many years you worked there and what your salary was and what you'd make at the end. But to stay in the running for it, you had to spend your whole career there, spend 30, 40 years there, something like that. And I saw people admittedly claim they would work long hours, they'd be underappreciated, they'd be in a job they didn't really like, they could go get more money somewhere else, but they'd stay there because they wanted that payout when they were 65 years old. They'd stay there for 40 years. So they saw that payout at the end and it was worth all the sacrifice to get it. And I think how much we understand heaven is the difference between laughing it off, taking the quick payouts of this life, the $10 an hour job, or it's working towards heaven, living in light of that reality, enduring hardship now because there's something greater we get for it. And when we have that understanding and faith, it can offer us hope. So I have another question for myself. I don't know why I phrased it like that. Why have I considered heaven more in the past year? I want to talk a little about my story, our story. Those of you that know us well, you've probably heard a lot of this, but some of you haven't. Why have we considered heaven more in the past year? You know, we tend to ignore death. We don't want to talk about it. We tend to put off thinking about eternity despite all those fabulous reasons we just talked about. We tend not to. But there's times where it just comes crashing into the forefront of our lives. Times when our friends or loved ones die. Times when we face illnesses ourselves and we face death. Mostly all of us have faced this with grandparents or parents. And like I said, my family walked through a death in the last year. And it caused us to consider heaven more than we ever have before. And so I want to share a little of our story, and I don't share it as something just shocking or emotional, but because, like I said, it's been forcing us to deal with the reality of heaven. And consider, is it really something that we can grab onto and hope for, or is it just some nice story you heard in Sunday school? We had Phoebe... Her first child, she's sitting up here coloring in the front row. And then we had a miscarriage, and then we had our third child named Josie, who's off in Sunday school. And we felt like we got back on our feet really quick, which is good. Somehow, like, your first kid, you're like, I don't know how I'll ever do life again, and then your second one, you're like, that wasn't bad. I don't know, it's different. I don't know if you've experienced that, but that's how we felt. And so, after Josie, it was just a few months, and we're like, let's do it again. And so we were in faith and praying, and we got pregnant again pretty quick, and we're expecting our fourth child. 
And having a previous miscarriage, we kind of muted our excitement until we got to about 12 weeks. And the doctors say you have a lot greater chance of the baby making it after that. And so we cleared that date, and we felt like things were going pretty good. And so Sarah had an ultrasound around 23 weeks along. I think that's where this picture's from, but I could be pretty wrong. They did lengthy looks at everything. That That's one where they really keep her in there for a long period of time and are checking, measuring things and checking organs and everything there and everything looked normal. We found out that our baby was a little girl, which is exciting. We didn't need anything with our third girl, so we had a lot of clothes and blankets and whatever around the house, so we were kind of good to go. It was kind of a, a crazy year at my job. I took on this high-priority project the only catch was it needed to have all this work done after hours. So I was working full time and then I'd come home and eat dinner and then I had to get back on and work four or five hours a night. And so it was just this busy six weeks or so. And at the end of it they said, thanks so much for all that work. You can just add up all those hours and take some time off and return for it. And I'd worked so much over that stretch that it ended up being like two or three weeks of time. I don't remember the exact number, but it was quite a bit. And at the same time a friend of ours called and said, that her parents were looking for someone to go house-sit and dog-sit for them in Hawaii, but they needed them to go down for three weeks. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I'll sign up for that grueling task. So, so we all went, which was great. And we got to go spend three weeks together there as a family, which was just a blessing and amazing. And so Phoebe and I would go off and do the adventure stuff, like the hikes and canoeing and whatever else we'd go do and then we'd leave mom and baby Josie and uh, our baby to be born yet would stay a nap in the afternoon we bought this little tent for them on the beach so they could nap there unfortunately even three weeks comes to an end felt like the longest time ever but you burned through it and we had to come back and carry on with life and go back to work Sarah went in for a 34-week visit to check on the baby, and everything still looked normal. And a little bit later, uh, I don't know, about a week after that, many of you came and threw this baby shower for Sarah. It was right up in the cafe there of the church here. And we got many gifts. We felt like they were all above and beyond what we needed, being our third girl again, but it was such a blessing. And got all these great gifts, and Sarah had a great time. And we went there. And that next weekend was kind of a crazy weekend for us. I worked all week, and then I was teaching for the firehouse at both locations. So I sat here Sunday morning. So I was kind of working all through the weekend and working on the teaching. And we'd come home Friday night and work on it and all day Saturday. And the kids had, like, two birthday parties to go to, so the family was just carting all over town. And we went to church Sunday morning and went home and napped and then carted up to go to Parker to our other location Sunday night. And it was just one of those 100-mile-per-hour weekends we got through and survived and wanted to just take a nap for the weekend. Well, Monday morning came along, and, and Sarah realized, whew, that was a busy weekend, but I haven't really felt the baby move in a while which sometimes you're just busy and out and it's normal. You're not thinking about it. And so it was Monday afternoon. She put the kids down for a nap and just sat down and and had some popsicles to say just pump that baby with sugar and they'll start dancing in there, I think, is the idea. And so she did that just to get her moving. Um, But sadly, even with the popsicles, she couldn't really feel her anymore. And so Sarah called up her OB in the middle of the afternoon and asked what to do. And so they asked her just to come down to the hospital to start checking things out. And so Sarah came and picked me up from work. I worked downtown pretty close to the hospital. So she came and picked me up late in the day. And she was sure she was just being paranoid. We were supposed to go to an amusement park and ride roller coasters with the kids that night and a couple other families in the church. So we were sure we'd get back to it and we were just being paranoid, but we went down there just to get things checked out. And so we got down there and they started hooking her up to monitors just to, to listen. And it just didn't sound quite right. Something sounded a little off. The heart rate of the baby was lower than it should have been. 
And so they proceeded to do ultrasounds where you could see the pictures and, and look at the baby. And so they, they hooked her up on that for a period of time just to watch and see what Sarah was feeling. And, um, and we hooked it up. In one sense, it was comforting because we could see her chest moving. She was breathing and looked fine on that. I don't, even being maybe the fourth kid, I was looking at ultrasounds. I don't really know what I'm looking at. They kind of look like aliens. A little bit. Near the end, they look a little more like a baby, but but I failed to notice. I'm kind of clueless in a hospital, but I failed to notice they were going in and out of the room a lot and conferring. And after some consultation, they kind of said, you know, it looks like we probably need to hold her in overnight and just keep looking at things with this baby. You're probably not going home again. And this was kind of a shock to us at this point. We were ready to get onto the amusement park. Um, so we started um, thinking through that. And they came back in a couple minutes later and said, you know, I don't even think it's going to be extensive monitoring. I think we just need to start inducing pregnancy and giving things to help it move along that the baby would be born tonight. And so our, our mind starts racing. What does that mean? And we're trying to call home to my sister-in-law who is with our kids and um, just square away dinner for the night and details we might not be home and make sure she was okay and talk to the kids quick. Um, and they continued to just pop in and out of the room and talked in the hall, talking about things. And they came back in eventually and said, you know, I think we really need to do an emergency C-section as soon as possible. We don't think the baby would really make it through a whole delivery at this point in the state she was in. And then at that point, they said, you know, there's really not even time to waste minutes on that. And so they kind of whisked me out of the room and got me over to some kind of waiting room next to the OR to change into scrubs to go in there. And I was trying to send off a text or two to our both of our families to let them know what was going on. I think I got one off, and then someone came in and just scooted me along and got me dressed and, and whisked out of the room. And by the time I got to the OR, they were already prepping Sarah with medicine and just getting ready for the operation. And we noticed as they were getting ready, there was already like a dozen people in that room. They had, I don't know who they all were, all very medical people, a lot of doctors and surgeons and nurses just all ready for whatever was about to come. It was wild after having two kids with normal deliveries that took hours because she was out fast. It was like minutes of getting in that room. Her baby girl was out. And from the start of things, things were not looking great. She came out and limbs were a little bluer than they should have been. And there was a kind of midwife with a pump, just trying to pump air into her lungs to help her breathe. So her lungs weren't fully ready to take on air. And so they had all those people that were in that room just kind of huddled around her, and they had this little cart in the operating room. I was just trying to, like, squeeze in there enough to grab her foot or something and catch on to her. Um, after, after about five minutes, they decided they needed to get her down to the NICU and get some more help for her, so they quick let Sarah just kind of touch her, hug her once, and... Uh, the baby and I were off, and this whole parade of people just went down the hall together with this little rolling cart, and um, they transferred her onto a bed in the NICU, and they stopped trying to do that hand pump and put this tube down her throat to help her breathe, and they were trying to get IVs ready to start getting medicine in there to help her along. Um, within seconds, they called for a cold blue which I'd never heard before but it meant that she wasn't breathing anymore and they needed to resuscitate her um, in a mere seconds there was just utter chaos over ten people just rushed into that little room that's the room there and they were working on her um, just trying to help her breathe uh, There's a lot of things hooked up to her to monitor stuff. I wasn't even really sure if her heart was beating at that point. And they yelled to just go get mom as soon as possible. 
And so someone, one of the nurses just went booking out of the room to go find mom. And she was still in the operating room. Um, and the nurse practitioner is telling me that they were just doing everything they could. They were trying to save our baby at that point. It was so fast and went there. And I was just rubbing her arm and trying to love on her. There's tubes and people, and again, I'm just trying to squeeze in there. I didn't even think she'd really moved yet at that point. And the doctor finally made it down to Sarah's room and just said, I think all she said to her was, I'm so sorry. And they just ripped off whatever had Sarah going on with her, just cuffs and monitors and um, wheeled her down the hall. They took her whole bed and, and wheeled it down the hall to the NICU right in this little room. They have a hospital bed jammed in here so we could both kind of get to her. I remember Sarah and I just holding hands and, and praying, God, would you save our baby? And they, in one sense, it's a long period, but they, they got her breathing again, and things eventually seemed to kind of stabilize. And we had enough of a break in things that um, we didn't really know how long she had, and we thought... We'd really like to just at least get her named here. And Sarah was about... We didn't expect the baby to come for another month, so we hadn't nailed down a name quite yet. But we decided there just to call her Hazel. So that was, was our favorite name off the list. And we named her middle name Anne after Sarah's middle name. Like I said, they were able to resuscitate her enough just to start running test after test and putting a bunch of medicine in her. But as these tests started to come in, um, the doctor asked if we'd go to the other room just to talk about what they were seeing and what all these tests were showing. And so she sat us down in this little room off around the corner and, and she told us it was likely that Hazel only had a few more hours to live and she was really just fighting for her life there. Apparently there had been just a lot of oxygen for a long time inside a mom. And there was a whole bunch of things that went wrong without oxygen for a long time. And so as beautiful, as perfect as she looked, just looking at her, her body was really sick. And she wasn't going to make it very long. I knew we couldn't keep her forever. But I just wanted more than anything just to hold on to her longer than we got to. And I remember being in that little room and they left Sarah and I alone. I just remember thinking there's nothing we wouldn't give up in this life just to hold her longer. Like in that moment, you're like, gosh, we'd sell our house. We'd give up all our money. We'd do whatever. You'd give up your organs just to have her in your arms longer. But there was nothing to do. And so we stayed up all night with her. We didn't even really want to go to sleep, just knowing the length of time we had. And the nurses were able to make some phone calls and got a hold of one of our phones so that our family knew and started to trickle in, the ones that lived close enough. So a number of people got to come and, and be with us and meet her. And then she died around 5 a.m. the next morning. We only had about nine hours with her. Remember praying and committing her to Jesus? And we had a confident hope that she'd be with the Lord in heaven that day. And I held her in my arms even after Sarah left the room. I just kept telling her how much I loved her. And I would miss her until I got to go to heaven and be with her. We were telling her to go play with her little brother or sister we didn't get to meet. Because she'd be up there with her, the one we lost in a miscarriage. And I never felt such a deep loss like I felt that 
morning. I held her as long as I could until she didn't start started looking a little different and eventually just handed her to the nurse and walked out into the hall. And the whole thing was just like a dream. Sarah and I went back to, to her room. She had a room to go recover in and it was morning by now. And we tried to just catch a couple hours of sleep. We were just exhausted after all that. I remember waking up after a few hours and it just felt like a nightmare. Couldn't have really happened last night. And it did. There was no making it go away or doing something different. It was just connecting with that. I'm going to miss her every day until I get to be in heaven and to hold her. And that next morning, as we just tried to pick things up, we're left to engage with what do we really believe? And there's no moments, it doesn't matter what you think you believe, or what the right thing to say is, what the good theological answer is, you don't have time in those moments. What shaped our viewpoint was really what truth had taken root in our hearts. What do we really believe? And this is where belief drifts from just doctrine, knowledge, or religion into something meaningful that can produce hope and faith in those times. So I put this question up there because it's something we've just been chewing on the last little over a year. How does heaven offer practical hope in the face of death? And I'm just going to share some things that God has given us that offer us hope in the face of going through this. One is that God will make all things right. And one of the things we felt in the days after this is just trying to understand, God, why did this happen? Why did we go through this? I think you go through a trial in your life and you think, that was hard, and then I want to understand what good God brought from it. Kind of like you work out and it hurts and then you get stronger muscles or something. You, you want there to be a payoff. And so we were going through that. I feel like that was a big question for a while. What, what's going to make this right? And in one sense, the answer was nothing. There's nothing natural about death. The first death in the Garden of Eden was not natural. It was in result of sin. And after the fall and sin, we experienced death and separation. Even Jesus wept profusely when his friend Lazarus died even though he understood that minutes later he would raise him from the dead and he would be back alive, Jesus wept at his side at the face of death. You know, a, a pastor friend of ours that did the funeral for us shared that to us. It really touched us that even Jesus felt that same thing. Knowing everything about heaven, knowing he would raise his friend from the dead, that he felt this loss and brokenness, and we felt that same thing. And we experience that even though there's this reality that Hazel's in heaven and we can go be in heaven with her one day, and we are weeping. And there's always going to be brokenness in her life. And there was a life that she didn't get to live. John 10.10 10 says the thief's, or Satan's, purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And that's what death does. It steals from us. It kills us. It destroys us. There's nothing beautiful. It's not something to go make peace with. It's not something to celebrate. But in the midst of that sorrow, there are some things just about God making it right and about heaven that offered us hope. Revelation 21.4 
speaks of God, it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. It's such an unnatural thing. God says in heaven there will be no more death. You won't have this separation and pain. I'm going to put an end to that in heaven. And the death that brings us a separation will be no more. We will be eternal beings before God. And God will put an end to there even being a need to cry, he says. We cried a lot in the last year. I have a two and a five-year-old girl at home. There's a lot of reasons to cry in life, I've learned. From stubbed toes to stolen dolls, to missing their sister, to the wrong thing for dinner. God says in heaven there will be no reason to cry anymore, nothing to be disappointed about, no loss. We talked about this a little bit last week, but complete judgment will be carried out in heaven. In Revelation 21, I forgot to put it up there, but it says, And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for it is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. I will be their God and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol-worshipping, all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So it will be finished. God says in heaven, all judgment, all sin, all death, all crying, it is finished. Also think of this, reconnecting with loved ones, obviously in this context, I'm sure you can all think of someone in your life that's gone on ahead of you to heaven. I I know people in this room that have lost parents this year and lost grandparents. And you're dealing with the same thing of just trying to understand heaven and how we can reconnect. And as we held Hazel and she breathed her last breath, we're obviously sobbing. And we told her we'd come after her to heaven. We can't wait to see her again. To hug and kiss her again. And we literally remember just committing her into the arms of Jesus. And as we talked about this at home, our oldest daughter was four at the time. And she asked good questions about that. Questions like, is she still going to be a baby in heaven? Is she still going to be sick in heaven? Did you see Jesus when you handed her over? Is her body still there? It's like lots of great questions we didn't anticipate, but it was all good. And honestly, I don't even know the answer to all of those questions. But this is what we do know. We have a confident hope that Jesus received her that day. That he gave her a new glorious body. That she stopped being in pain. And that she had no more tears. She didn't have to labor to breathe anymore. We have a confident hope that she's going to be waiting on the banks of Jordan for us when the Lord calls us home, standing next to our other child up there. And I anticipate that being like a family reunion you actually want to go to. No jello salads and weird uncles, a glorious family reunion. And in the days after this happened, we did feel crushed. And we also had this confident hope in heaven and in Christ. And I remember Sarah and I just talking it over, going, this is really hard. It's crushingly hard. 
And the same joke, and we go, how on earth would somebody ever go through this if they had no hope of heaven? I don't know. How would we have gone on? That hope carried us through some dark days and months that were to follow. Because we know that God will make things right in heaven. And it's more than just having, but there's more than just having a family reunion and being done crying that makes heaven worth it. Christ said he died to bring us home as his bride. So another aspect of heaven I'm looking forward to and we've really connected with more is that we will fully experience relationship with God. Does anyone still listen to the radio out there in your car? I, I listen to it a lot because I'm driving to work and stuff. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you listen to a DJ or a talk show host for years, you start to formulate this picture of what they look like. And then, if you go to like a rock concert and you see the tent for your favorite radio station and you go to a Broncos game and they're there and you meet the person, they never look like what you think, do they? They all look a little weirder or different or you expected something else. It's just not what you thought, listening to them. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. We talked last week about Psalm 139, about how God knows the number of hairs on our head. That God knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows our thoughts, our intentions, when we wake up, when we lie down, our number of days. He knows everything about us. And we're told that we'll no longer see dimly, like a rearview mirror in your car or a 90s flip phone camera, but we're going to see everything, including God with perfect clarity. Jesus said in John 14, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, and trust also in me, for there is more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus said he was going, and he'd bring us to a place To always be with God. No separation. Jesus said when he was here, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that's true for all of eternity. Never will he forsake us. Another thing I'm looking forward to is to behold the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 4, says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And the psalmist saw this future of being in heaven and being in the house of the Lord at his throne and meditating at the beauty of his face. I don't think we totally connect with that. But I remember looking at my wife the day we're married and seeing her beauty. I remember the day all three of my girls were born and looking at their face the first time and seeing how beautiful they were and looking at that. I can think of being up in the Rocky Mountains, just standing up in the mountains and the sun comes up in the morning and you can see just mountains all around you and you can see the snow turning pink and the lake glistening and you hear birds chirping and it's just beautiful. And there's a God that created us, created my daughters and my wife. There's a God that created the Rocky Mountains. And when we behold him, he will be insurmountably more beautiful than the mountains. We can't even imagine it. When the Lord interacted with Moses in Exodus 33, he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. 
I was thinking about that verse and thinking, do you realize if God just popped his face in the side of the church here and somehow we got to see it? Scriptures say literally we would drop dead at the sight. As humans, we can't even comprehend and take that in without dying. And yet in Revelations 22, it speaks of heaven and it says, No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads. And so one day in heaven we will gaze upon His beauty. We will kneel at His feet, we'll be before His throne worshiping Him. And there are things about heaven that are beautiful, beyond, the scripture says, the things God has prepared for us are beyond what we can even hope or imagine. And it's those beautiful things about heaven, it's looking forward to seeing God's face that afforded me hope. But I think there's a a practical hope that it offers in our life that's really the sum of two things. And one is how much we know about it. What are we looking forward to? Is it something worth hoping for? And the other is how sure are we that we're going to go there? I think I talked about this last month, but the Powerball hit over the summer. And fever was sweeping the nation. My office was pooling up money to buy as many tickets as they could to put in so much money because it was $748 million. And my CEO got into it and and offered to match contributions to this lottery ticket as if it was a 401k plan. And people were talking over the water cooler about how it would change their lives, what kind of sports car they were going to get, if they'd pay off mom's mortgage or they'd buy them a house, or what kind of trips they'd go on, the jewelry they'd get, the electronics, what they'd do to their house. The only problem is the odds of winning the Powerball are 1 in 292 million. And so needless to say, it came and went, and no one in my office won the Powerball. And heaven can seem this way. We can read all those verses we went through about how amazing it would be and how amazing it would be to behold God. We can get this glorious picture. But unless we have a hope and expectation to actually go there, it will offer no hope in our lives. It's just like holding on to a lottery ticket and hoping for the best. But there's another response we can have, which is just to close our eyes and hope for the best. I don't know if you've ever been tight on your budget and you've been overspending and you just didn't want to look because you knew it was bad and you wrote a check and just hope it wouldn't bounce or you went to the grocery store and gave them your credit card and you're like crossing your fingers, don't hand it back to me. I've been there before. We can be this way with God a little bit. We kind of look at our good works are like a deposit into the bank and our sin is kind of like taking money out and we're just hoping to get to the end of our lives and have it be good news and hoping we're in the black and we're not in the red. And we're hoping we're a good enough person and we're just kind of closing our eyes and it's not a very fun way to live. But going through this death in our family, going through dealing with those questions, I can tell you this. You don't want to be wishing or sheepishly hoping for the best, or hoping you're in the black when it comes to heaven. I think we can be deceived about our position before God and our inclusion in heaven. And I want to read a few Bible verses that talk about how our good works and our sins stack up against one another. Romans 3.23 It says, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Each of us has fallen short. If you've ever lied, you've fallen short of God's standard. If you've ever looked at someone with lust, you've fallen short. If you've ever made something in your life to be more important than God, you've fallen short. And I've fallen short. We all have. We've all sinned. And our good works are not enough. Isaiah 64, God says this to us, We're all infected and impure with sin, 
When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. There, there was an apartment of single guys in our church a number of years back, and they invited me over for dinner. And afterwards, I had to run off to a meeting, and so I was kind of left in their apartment, and I thought... It would be great to help clean up their kitchen and try to bless them. And so I was hunting through. Somehow I was alone in there, so I was just hunting through cabinets trying to find something to clean up with. And I found this sponge and some cleaner. And so I cleaned up the whole kitchen, and I was feeling real good about myself. And they came back in, and my friend was kind of looking. He's like, oh, did you clean up the kitchen with that sponge? I was like, yeah, I did. I was feeling good about myself. So I'm just serving and blessing here. And he was like, oh, did you see that there's a black X on it? I hadn't noticed. No, there's a big black X with permanent marker. What does that mean? He said, well, we put the black X on that one because that's the bathroom cleaning sponge. (laughs) And I quickly realized that no amount of 409 and trying to clean up the kitchen with the bathroom sponge that had been on the toilet will ever make it clean. (laughs) So I think I left, and he, he was kind of a germaphobe, so he went back through and cleaned everything probably 10 times. I think I made it worse. And God says... Our good works are like filthy rags because we've stained them with our sin. Our good works are kind of like the toilet sponge trying to clean up after ourselves. It's not making things better. It's not making us clean before God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And a wage is what you get when you work for the day. I wake up early on Monday mornings and drive into work and get there at a reasonable time because I'm assured I'm going to get a wage at the end of the month and I'm going to get paid for that time and it's the amount we agreed upon. I wouldn't go to work if not. And when we sin before God, the scripture says we can be assured we're going to get the wage for that. And that wage is death. So what was God talking about here when he talks of death? Unfortunately, it's not even just breathing our last breath. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1, He will come with his mighty angels, flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When we talk about the reality of hell, Really, it's eternal separation. It's being excluded from all those good things we talked about in heaven. Never seeing God's face. Being excluded from all the glorious things he's creating. Not seeing his creation or his throne. Or the things he's been making up there the last 2,000 years that are more glorious than the Rocky Mountains. Rather forever alone and suffering. But God made a way for us to have a hope. And it's more than having a lottery ticket and hoping for the best. It's that Jesus paid the price for us to go to heaven and to be sure of it. In 1 John 5.13, we're told, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That we can look forward to seeing His face. And this is because Jesus paid the price for us to go to heaven. Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh as a baby. He was crucified as a criminal for our sins after living a sinless life. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ suffered for sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners. To bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. And last week we talked about how God cares for us and has the power to act. And that ultimate coming together of those two qualities brings us hope and brings his goodness into our life. And in this context, he cared enough to come to earth, to become a baby, to be mocked, beaten, and killed for you and for me. And not just that, he had the power to overcome death 
be raised again and to go up to heaven and say, I'm prepared a place for you. And he has the power to offer eternal life. And his victory is so complete that it says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scriptures will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, but the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death, hell, they have been declawed. They have been defeated. To Jesus, they are like a bee that has lost its stinger. It can't sting us again, and it is destined to die. But death has not completely lost its sting on everyone, only to those who believe in Jesus Christ, it says. And when we place our hope in Jesus, we gain the hope of heaven. But we only join in this victory when we believe in Him. In Romans 10, it says, If you openly declare, or another translation says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. And so if we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and tell God that we're trusting in Him to be made right with Him, we will be saved from destruction and hell. And we will have a confident hope in heaven that's not just wishing or looking away. In John 14, I read this earlier, just another take on it, but Jesus did say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. And so Jesus is in heaven and creating things and getting it ready. And if we believe in him and put our trust in him, he says we will come, he will come and get us when the time is ready. We can be certain of it. We can hope in it. We can set our lives around it. We talked about last week that God gives us His Holy Spirit and He's with us in our times of trouble. And He gives us love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in the face of tragedy, in the face of this life. But another reason God said He gave us His Holy Spirit is as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5.5 it says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, rather, we want to put on new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself prepared us for this and as a guarantee has given us his Holy Spirit. And so having the Holy Spirit guarantees our place in heaven. It's like a token that gives us, gets us in. Or having our name on the list. And Jesus says, He will come and He will bring us home to heaven. We don't have to wonder if it's enough, if we've worked hard enough. It's done. It's sealed. There's a guarantee in His Spirit. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, your eternity is sealed. There's no more wondering and hoping. And so I just leave you with two practical steps today. I don't want it to just be a shocking story or warm fuzzies. One is to put your hope in Jesus Christ today. Again, this is Romans 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, your heart, my heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart 
that you are made right with God and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. We don't know how many days we have. We don't know when tragedy will strike. Those people in Las Vegas two weeks ago probably had a lot of plans left and thought they had years left in their life. I thought my daughter Hazel would outlive me. But the reality is we do not know the days we have. Don't delay. Don't think you can do it later. Get things squared away today. You can feel free to ask me questions about this afterwards or other people around here, I'd love to talk with you about it. Don't delay on this. And if you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, consider and set your minds on heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And God tells us we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. We have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of Jesus Christ. If we had no hope of seeing Hazel again, really I don't know how we would have gone on with life. I don't know how we would have had the faith to get pregnant again. But God says we can have this confident hope in heaven because of his victory on the cross. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, it says, Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. Because heaven is guaranteed, because we're sealed, we have that deposit, is our eternal reality. And we're told to set our sights upon it, set our minds upon it. So I urge you to consider heaven. Consider eternity. Consider being at the feet of God and worshiping him. Consider seeing all that he has created since he was raised in glory 2,000 years ago, getting it ready to prepare a place to bring all those who believe in him. Consider being caught up in the clouds when Jesus returns. So I encourage you just to take a quiet time this week and obey this verse. Set your sights on the reality of heaven and pray that God would shape your life based on that reality. I can tell you this, in the last year we look at a lot of things differently in life. We look at money differently. We look at entertainment differently. We look at the urgency to share the gospel differently. That day that Hazel went to be with Jesus, part of my heart went with her. There's not a day that goes by I don't think about just wanting to go be with her there. I don't think about wanting my whole family to be reunited. And God wants to shape our lives around this reality. I feel like I understand more fully what Paul said in Philippians in chapter 1 when he said, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, and I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I don't really know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. And I can relate with that heart more in the last year. I long to go be with Christ and to be with Hazel. But God has me, has all of us on this earth for fruitful labor to bring him honor here to bring him glory with our lives let's pray God we thank you for today 
thank you for Hazel. God, I thank you for her life. I thank you for getting to hold her for that day. I thank you that she's with you. In full joy, beholding your beauty today, Lord. God, I pray you'd help us consider the reality of eternity. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I just pray you'd put it on their heart to consider the gift you've offered in Jesus Christ. God, that they'd put their hope in you. And for those of us that know you, God, help us live our lives in light of heaven. Help us consider it. Help us set our minds upon it. Help us live in light of eternity and not waste our lives going after the things of this earth that are going to be destroyed and don't matter. God, help us together be living in light of that. Help us understand more fully the reality of heaven this week and bring you honor. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.